Well, good morning again. Uh, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 8 through 16. That'll be our sermon text for this morning. We are we're almost at the end of Hebrews. We have been uh, plugging along, I think, just since January. I think that's when we started. And uh, we're, we're at the end now. We have this week and then next week, I think, we finish off the book. So Hebrews 13, 8 through 16. Before we read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we, uh, we thank you for this book. We thank you for Hebrews, uh, for the writer of Hebrews, whoever that was. Uh, we thank you that you, uh, by your sovereign grace, put this book in your word and uh, inspired that person. Uh, that we might learn of Jesus, that we might learn of his great high priesthood, that we might learn of his sacrifice for our sins, that we might have a clearer sight of how Jesus fulfilled all that happened in the Old Testament and Old Covenant. Father, we thank you for the exhortations that we come to this morning, and we pray that you would teach us, that you would, um, that you would speak to us, that by your Spirit you would exhort us exhort us to walk in a manner that is pleasing to you and uh, gives glory to your name and help us to do that by the power of your spirit. We confess our weakness as we come to you. We confess our, our distractibility as we come to you. So we pray that you would keep our minds focused and we pray that you would empower us by your spirit to obey. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. Again, Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Basic Christian discipleship. Uh, that, that's really what we're going to be talking about this morning. By discipleship, I mean learning. I mean, a, a, a disciple is a learner, a follower, a student of someone else, their teaching and their way of life. Christians, of course, are disciples of Jesus. By basic, I, I mean the, the beginning, right? The, the baby steps, the elementary school lessons in the life of being a disciple. And of course, by Christian, I mean those who follow Christ. For those people who believe in Jesus and want to follow him, this is where you start. Uh, 
now, if you are not a Christian, but you've ever wondered what it means to follow Jesus or what this Christianity thing is all about, or maybe you have some preconceptions of what that means, which may be right, but may be wrong, uh, we'll talk about the basics of that this morning. What is basic Christian discipleship? And our writer started talking about the life of worship back in chapter 12, verse 28. And what he is doing is explaining to us what worship on this side of the cross looks like. See, scripture refers roughly to the time before the cross as the old covenant, uh, beginning with Moses. And the time on this side of the cross, scripture refers to as the new covenant. Our, Our writer is explaining what worship looks like in the new covenant. In the old covenant, God's relationship with his people that that began at Mount Sinai under Moses, worship took place in the temple through ritual sacrifice for those who had been sanctified, that is for a holy people. But Jesus has come. He he fulfilled what those bloody sacrifices pointed to. He, He was the reality of which they were only the signpost. And since Jesus has come and done what those Old covenant sacrifices could not do, that form of worship has passed away. Now, it's not that old covenant worship has nothing to say to us, uh, far to the contrary, but, but we don't worship like the saints of old, at least not in the same way. Our worship uh, in the new covenant, as we talked about last week a little bit, can be split into two categories, what we often call the, the, the worship service, right? That This right here, right now, Uh, This is worship narrowly defined as we draw near to our God, receive his grace, and then worship in all of life, which would be worship broadly defined. It's the distinction I made last week between Sunday morning worship and Monday morning worship, right? And and interestingly enough, when the New Testament, the the books written after Jesus came, when, when the New Testament talks about worship, it is more often than not talking about worship in this broad sense, worship in all of life. And our text this morning is just a continuation of last week's text. And so our writer just continues his program to to reimagine worship in light of Christ. This this life of worship that he's describing is the life of discipleship, the life of following Jesus day by day. And to understand that, uh, we will look at three exhortations uh, for the life of the disciple, the, the baby steps in the life of discipleship. Those three exhortations can be found in uh, your, your bulletin. Uh, they are the, uh, in the outline. They are feed on grace, identify with Christ, and offer up yourselves. Feed on grace, identify with Christ, and offer up yourselves. Uh, number one, feed on grace. Life is inherently unstable. This was brought home to me recently because in the past two weeks, two different friends lost their daughters. One was 12 and the other was 16. One was expected and the other was completely out of the blue. And in one sense, nothing can prepare you for that, except to say that that life is inherently unstable. It is shakable. It is uncertain. It is precarious. Now that I know of, right, none of you have gone through that this week. But I also know, right, some of you have still gone through a lot. 
a lot of uncertainty, uh, a lot of unexpected trouble, a lot of pain. See, we live in a world of, of shakable things. Life itself is unstable. And how do you respond when life is shaken? And that might be in the big things, right? The, the death of a loved one, the loss of a job or a global pandemic or friends rejecting you, turning their back on you. Or it might be in the mundane, right? plans get changed. Uh, your alarm doesn't go off and you're late for work or traffic slows you down and, and your kids are bickering in the back seat. What happens to your heart in those moments? Now, I, I don't want to imply that those moments are all the same, right? They, they are not. But I know that, that I have banged on the steering wheel in Philly traffic. And yet after I got fired from the first church I pastored, I walked out in complete calm. And what that shows is it's not the size of the problem that determines your response. And so what happens to your heart when life is shaken? Are you easily upset or depressed or angered or afraid? Hebrews 13.9 says we need our hearts strengthened. The King James Version uses the word established. Uh, the word can also be translated sustained. And so what strengthens you? What grounds you when everything else around you is shaking? Uh, what sustains you in the midst of trouble and for the long haul? Well, the writer mentions three options or three different things that we tend to look to, two that we tend to look to and one that we ought to look to. He mentions faddish teachings, traditional practices, and grace. Uh, first, he mentions kind of faddish teachings in verse 9. He says, uh, do not be led us away by diverse and strange teachings. By diverse and strange teachings. See, there, there are lots of ideas out there. They vary from, from one another. They, they are diverse, right? They are contrary to the gospel of God's grace, strange to uh, the teaching of Scripture. They're, they're also often plausible, sometimes culturally acceptable, sometimes a little eccentric or odd or out there. But the thing about them is they, they are numerous, right? They're always changing. There's always something new, something different. The very transience of them, their, their very diversity demonstrates their instability. And so we end up moving from fad to fad, right? One uh, new religion or religious trend to the next, one psychological theory to another, from self-help book to self-help book, hoping to fix our lives, hoping to find something firm, something stable. But our life continues to shake. And so maybe you turn to tradition, right? Something old, something that has been around for a while, something that you feel like has proven itself. And the writer continues in verse nine. He says, uh, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, it's, it's likely that by foods here, the writer is referring to Old Testament dietary laws or sacrificial meals or both. He uses the same word in Hebrews chapter 9 when he says, according to this arrangement, that is according to the Old Covenant, 
Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. See, there, there were certain outward ceremonies under the old covenant, outward foods, outward washings, regulations for the body, he says, that in themselves did nothing for the soul. They could cleanse the body. They could not cleanse the heart. They could sustain the body. They could not sustain the heart. And we see this kind of pendulum swing between sort of the, the newest fads and uh, what is old and, and, and traditional and proven. Uh, we see this in theologies and styles of worship all the time, actually. Uh, you know, my parents' generation rejected everything traditional, uh, many of them, not all, but many of them. And so you ended up with churches like Willow Creek, right, that, that intentionally tried to do things in non-traditional ways. Uh, they were reacting against formalism, but I think they went a bit too far. And then in the past 20 years, the pendulum has swung uh, or been swinging the other way, where people often want something that feels traditional, that feels rooted or old and so meaningful and stable. And the problem is, whatever rituals you can come up with, no matter how ancient the practice is, outward rituals themselves cannot affect the heart. That was true of the Old Covenant dietary laws and sacrificial meals of themselves that could not affect the heart. And if that was true of a God-given system of religion, how much more is it true of any man-made religion, no matter how ancient and established, no matter how modern and enlightened? And see, here's the thing. Jumping from one fad to the next cannot produce stability in your life. And clinging to traditional forms of religion, ancient outward practices cannot reach your heart. And so the writer says, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Our hearts must be strengthened, established, sustained by grace. Paul says in Colossians chapter two, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. We must be rooted, built and established in Christ. Now, now what is interesting here is, is that uh, the writer of Hebrews says we are strengthened or established by grace. The writer is not saying, sure up your understanding of grace, but sure up your life by grace. Uh, do, you, do you see the difference? It, it's subtle, and, and they go together, but they're not quite the same thing. He, he's not making a statement about your religious beliefs. He is making a statement about how your religious beliefs impact your life, really how grace impacts your life. It's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. How does the grace of God bring stability? How does it strengthen us? How does it establish us in the midst of the shakable things? Uh, first, grace is, is God's unearned and unmerited favor, right? It, grace is God's free and forgiving love. It's the, the, the food for our souls is the free love of God found in Jesus. If you want something to sustain you and to establish you and to strengthen you, feast on God's love in Jesus. But uh, uh, second, consider this Jesus, right? Look at verse 8 and what verse 8 says about Jesus. Verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. 
And so if you want something stable, uh, you want something firm, if you want something unchanging, look to Jesus. Now, the writer's already said that Jesus is, is God incarnate. He, he's not denying the acts of the incarnation or the crucifixion or the resurrection and so on. He is speaking about the person, the person who was incarnate, the person who died and rose and ascended is the same person who was with the Father in the beginning. He is the eternal word. He does not change. His purposes do not change. He is eternal. And through his incarnation and crucifixion and resurrection and ascension, Jesus has brought humanity, his own humanity, into that eternal life. Now, that's great for Jesus, you might think, but, but what about us? What does that do for me? Well, consider verse 10. In verse 10, the writer says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now, now what is he talking about? What is, what is that altar in, in the Old Covenant, uh, the priests would offer sacrifices on the altar, and then some of those sacrifices, either they or even the people, would get to partake of some of the food of that sacrifice. They would get to eat from the food that was on the altar. So what is the altar that the writer's talking about, uh, that we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat? And commentators give different answers about this. There are at least three or four uh, but I, I do want to point out, though, that one that it could not be uh, is the Lord's table, right? So I'm, I, as I read this passage, uh, I'm kind of looking and thinking about the Lord's Supper oftentimes, but it actually can't be referring to the Lord's table because the Lord's table in Scripture is not called an altar, but a table. And that's because there is no sacrifice made there, right? Jesus died once for all. He sacrificed himself on the cross, and that, I think, is the altar of which our writer speaks. Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross. Others would say, and this is, is fine as well, others would say that the word altar here is used by way of a, a kind of figure of speech to refer to the food that is on the altar, in which case he is speaking of Jesus. Jesus is the sacrifice laid on the Father's altar given up for our sins. And so if you want stability in life, feed on Christ, Christ, the eternal one who has entered into heaven and offers us an unshakable life in himself. And you might think, okay, well, how does that happen? How, how do we feed on Christ? Well, there are, are two answers to that question. Really, it's two separate questions. Uh, where do we find Christ? And then how do we feed on him? The answer to the first question is actually fairly simple. We find Christ in word and sacrament. Uh, if you are hungry and want to eat, right, you must go to the dinner table. And if we are hungry, if our souls are hungry, we must go to the place where God is serving his food, which is in the word and the sacraments. Now, the truth is we only have one of those at the moment. And I think this time this time in the midst of COVID, this time when we're separated by distance, this time is actually a gift from God to cause us to hunger for the Lord's Supper. Hunger is not bad, right? It reminds us of what is important. It causes us to long. But we do still have, of course, the word. Jesus said, quoting Deuteronomy in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. How do we feed on Christ in the word? 
Well, uh, Jesus says in John chapter six, uh, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now, those words were hard to hear for Jesus's, Jesus' contemporaries. Uh, what does it mean to feed on his flesh and drink of his blood? Well, what does it mean? What does it mean to feed on Jesus' flesh and drink on his blood unto eternal life? Jesus says, that's how we receive life. Whoever feeds on him and drinks of him has eternal life. So what does that mean? Well, uh, in John 6, if uh, we were to turn there, there are three points in the context that actually help explain. Uh, first, in John 6, uh, 63 and 64, a few verses later from what I just read, Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. See, the flesh does not give life. Again, there, there are maybe allusions to the Lord's Supper here, but Jesus is not talking about the Lord's Supper because he says the flesh is not about the flesh. It's about the spirit. Feeding on Jesus through the word by faith. We see that again in John uh, 6, 47. Uh, prior to what we read, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. How do we feed on Christ? We feed on Christ by believing in him. Finally, in an almost exact parallel to John, John 6, 54, which said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In John 6, 40, Jesus says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so how do we feed on Christ? We look on the son and believe in him. Whoever believes has eternal life. The words that uh, Jesus spoke to us are spirit and life. What must we do with those words? We must believe, believe in the son. There is nothing more stable than the resurrected Christ, who is also the eternal word of God. And you can partake of him, right? You can take him into yourself. The way we take food into ourselves to sustain us, right? To give us strength, to give us uh, ability, to give us life. We can partake of Jesus by faith in him. You partake of God's grace. You feed on grace. Your heart is strengthened by grace, established by grace, sustained by grace, as you look on the Son and believe in him. And so the food of new covenant worship is Christ our sacrifice. Feed on him in faith. Feed on grace, the, the, the food of new covenant worship found in Jesus. Second, identify with Christ, the glory of new covenant worship. I, identity is important, right? I, identity is ultimately about glory. Think about it. Uh, why is it that after a football team wins the Super Bowl, you suddenly see more people wearing their jerseys? Because by identifying with the winning team, you get a little piece of their glory. 
And so we wear all kinds of paraphernalia, right? Sports jerseys, uh, video game t-shirts, hats and hoodies, advertising various products. It's a way of identifying with a brand that's cool, uh, of claiming a little of their glory for your own. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to wear a sports jersey or, or whatever, right? But, but notice where your heart is. Are you grabbing after glory? Are you trying to identify with this thing to claim a little of their glory for your own? We live in a day where some are afraid of identifying with Christ because they're afraid of being misunderstood, right? The Christian brand is not very cool at the moment. If people find out I'm a Christian, uh, we say, uh, they, they might think I'm, I'm that kind of Christian or I don't want them to misunderstand what that means. And so we tiptoe around it or we find another name, right? Uh, we say, I'm not a Christian, I'm a Christ follower. Why do we do that? because we don't want to bear the reproach associated with his name. In the Old Testament, the, the, the place of glory was the place of holiness, right? God's glory was supremely displayed in the most holy place. Hebrews chapter nine, verse five uh, says that the most holy place had the statues of the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Uh, cherubim were a type of R, a type of angel and uh, they were the cherubim of glory because they, the manifest presence of God, the glory of God, was enthroned above the cherubim. Uh, God manifested his glorious presence there. He met with his people there, enthroned above the cherubim. The, the place of glory was the place of holiness. The further you moved away from the most holy place, the further you moved away from holiness and from glory. So you left the most holy place and you came to the holy place and outside the holy place was the temple courtyard. Outside the, that was the, the camp and the city and <clears throat> even the building materials used in the temple reflected this because you, you moved uh, from gold uh, outward to, to, to bronze and other types of materials as you moved away from the place of glory and the place of holiness. And again, on the very outside, you had the, you had the camp and the city and where, where those who were ritually clean were allowed to be. Uh, but if you were unclean, you had to go outside the camp. Outside was the place not of holiness, but of uncleanness, not of glory, but of shame. Well, Jesus flips these ideas on their heads. You see the tabernacle, the, the temple, they were, uh, they are, were a part of the fading things, the things which pass away. The writer says in verse 14, here we have no lasting city. Why? Because everything we know, everything we experience, every thing in this world is passing away. And like those bloody sacrifices of old, which were burned outside the camp, Jesus suffered outside the gate, outside Jerusalem, in the place of uncleanness, in the place of shame. There he suffered reproach. Now what's going on with the Hebrews, right? The, the people to whom this letter was written, they, they are tempted to go back to, to uh, Jerusalem, tempted to go back to Judaism in order to avoid rejection, in order to avoid persecution and shame. So the writer's exhortation is, is really very specific. He's saying there's no glory left for Israel there. You, you have to go outside the camp and bear the reproach that Christ endured. You have to accept rejection and persecution and shame for Jesus' name's sake, which will mean being shunned by the camp, by Israel, by the community, but for Christ's sake. 
And of course, we have a similar choice, right? Do I want to cling to the glories of this age? Do I want to be accepted and loved and honored by the people of this age? Or am I willing to go outside the camp and bear the reproach of Jesus and find true holiness? And did you notice, right, in verse 12, what the writer said? Uh, Verse 12, he said, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. See, when we identify with Jesus, yes, we, we bear his reproach, but we are sanctified, made holy, set apart to the Father. You see, we can, we can pursue acceptance with, this, with the world or find acceptance with the Father. You can't do both, right? You can, you can pursue acceptance with the world or you can find acceptance with the Father. You can't do both. But if you accept Christ's reproach, if you're willing to be rejected for his name's sake, you will find the glory of being identified with the resurrected one. Your holiness will be, I am identified with Christ. And your glory will be, I am identified with Christ. Now, what does that look like? Well, it means, okay, not finding your identity in anything in this world, not pursuing glory in the present age, but finding your identity in the one who was rejected, knowing that our glory is the cross. It means being honest about your Christian faith with those around you. It means knowing that you may be misunderstood, but only because Christ is misunderstood. And we do that in part because verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. If we seek the glories of this age, they won't last. We seek the glory of Christ in the city that is to come. It's a glory that will last forever. And so don't look to the ever-changing fads or traditional rituals, but to the the food of grace in Christ. And don't look to the glory of of brands or ritual holiness, but to identification with the resurrected one. Feed on grace, the food of new covenant worship, and identify with Christ, the glory of new covenant worship. And third, offer up yourselves, the sacrifices of new covenant worship. We started out by saying that our topic was discipleship, and I quickly moved to talking about worship, specifically worship in all of life, Monday morning worship, because the life of discipleship is ultimately a life of worship. We are continually uh, tempted to think of religion as merely a Sunday morning thing. And now it's important to say it is that, but it is more. And yet some of us, we get stuck there, right? Uh, Some see religion as specific formal acts of religious service and that only. And today that might mean, right, attending a religious service or reading a religious book or kneeling or praying or meditation or whatever. In the old covenant, it meant bloody sacrifices. They were extremely important, right? Uh, Because as Paul says in a different context, the substance belonged to Christ, right? They pointed forward to Christ, but take out Christ, And you have left only empty ritual. You see, Christ has come. He he offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. The sacrifice of the old covenant, then the sacrifices of the old covenant are, are no longer binding on Christians, right? They have been fulfilled in Jesus. And so where does that leave us? Is the new covenant no longer a religion of sacrifice? Well, actually, not at all. The new covenant is a religion of sacrifice, 
But Jesus offered up a bloody sacrifice that we might offer up living ones, our very selves. The idea, in fact, that sacrifice goes beyond ritual slaughter of animals is not a new covenant concept, but it's been there all along. You find it in the Psalms, right, where the writers contrast burnt offerings with the sacrifice of a broken spirit. They, con they, they contrast the sacrifice of bulls and goats with the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Our, our writer this morning breaks our offering down in the last two verses, verses 15 and 16, which say this. Through him, that's through Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So we see here uh, two kinds of sacrifice, the, the sacrifice of praise and the sacrifice of property, we can put it. We call it uh, sometimes the ministry in word and deed. Uh, first, the sacrifice of praise. Our temptation is to read this as uh, singing. We hear the word praise, we think singing. Uh, praise and worship is, after all, what some call the, the singing that takes place in, uh, in the worship context. But our writer explains it like this, the sacrifice of praise is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The sacrifice of praise is not singing in worship uh, alone, but what happens anytime we acknowledge God's name, whether in formal worship or in a coffee shop or with a coworker or a classmate. It covers what people call praise and worship, but also evangelism, as well as spontaneous thanksgiving for what God has done, as well as pointing to him in everyday conversations. To acknowledge God is not, is not just to, to know deep down that, that God is real and active. Right? Our writer is exhorting us to offer the fruit of lips. Uh, so Paul says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth, mouth one confesses and is saved. You see something powerful happens in us and in the lives of others when we openly acknowledge Jesus, we identify uh, with him in a way that we hadn't before when we, when we just believed him in our hearts, so to speak. And, and then others hear that and their view of us and of God has changed. They're given the opportunity to respond to God's grace at work in your life. And it doesn't mean you should always, uh, you know, blurt out the name of Jesus every time you see an opening, no matter how small, right? You just kind of push through and slam down the gospel. No, we must be attentive to the spirit, walking uh, by faith, waiting on God, bathed in prayer, immersed in his word, and always ready to give a defense, as Peter would put it, when the opportunity presents itself. And so is Christ, right? Is he always on your lips? Is he, he, he is always active in your life, which means every moment you have an opportunity to acknowledge him, what he is doing in this moment, to thank him, to praise him. Hence, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And yet there's another sacrifice, right? The sacrifice of, of property. Verse 16, again, uh, says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, when I say a sacrifice of property, I'm not talking about giving to the organized church, right? That's important. It keeps us going, but that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what uh, the writer is talking about. 
by, by a sacrifice of property, I mean doing good and sharing what you have. I mean being a blessing to those who have physical needs. I mean caring for those in our midst who are less fortunate. Our writer says such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, by calling these two things sacrifices, it emphasizes that they are costly. They may hurt. They, they may be painful at times. There may be repercussions for offering these things up. Uh, David at one point refused to offer to God a sacrifice that he didn't pay for. Someone offered to give him land and oxen and a cart for a sacrifice. And David responded in 1 Chronicles 21, no, but I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. See, to offer a sacrifice that costs you nothing is a contradiction in terms. Sacrifices are costly by nature. It is through costly sacrifices, of course, that we demonstrate love. I think, think about that short story, uh, the gift of the Magi, right? There, there's a poor husband and wife. Each sell what is most precious to them to buy a gift for their spouse. And it's the costliness of it, right? Not the financial cost, right? But the personal cost, which demonstrates the depth of the love involved. When we love, we sacrifice, and this doesn't have to be uh, uh, only about sentimental things, right? If you love football, you might scrimp and save to buy season tickets, even if it means you can't do other things. If you love learning, you might work long hours to save money to pay for college. If you love video games, you might give up hours you could spend doing other things to develop your gaming skills, right? It doesn't matter what you love. You will sacrifice for what you love. And so where are you offering yourselves a living sacrifice? Is your sacrifice one of praise to God? Are you ready to acknowledge his name at every moment? Is it one of sharing what you have with others? Do you look around and see people in need and try to find ways to do them good? On what altar do you lay your gifts? Offer yourselves up a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, offering the fruit of lips and sharing with those who have need for such sacrifices are pleasing to our God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus who offered himself up for us, who bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we too might die to sin and live to righteousness. And we pray, Father, that you would enable us by your spirit, by the spirit of Jesus in us, to, to walk in newness of life, to reflect his grace to the world as we as we give of ourselves for, for your glory and the good of those around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.